The American Foundation for Suicide Prevention reminds you to care for your mental health in the face of uncertainty. Focus on what is in your control versus what is not. Do what helps you feel a sense of safety. Remind yourself to stay in the present. Stay connected with others. You can reach the crisis text line by texting TALK to 741-741 or call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. We are in this together and help is always available. Welcome to the Rebel at Large Adventure Podcast. I'm Drifter. And I'm Gypsy. Talking about ghost towns, graveyards, outlaws, heroes, and ladies of the night. Howdy folks. Thanks for sticking with us on our journeys. This adventure may be a little difficult for some as we're going to share with you our experience at the Oregon Hospital for the insane. Before any of you ask, they didn't try to keep either of us as patients. I did try to get Gypsy to sign the guest book on the bottom line, but <laughs> she uh, she caught on. Yes. <laughs> uh, some of the stories we are going to share are very emotional, but we need to remember if we if it were not for these folks, we would not be where we are at today medically. At times, it may seem like we're making jokes. But we are merely trying to lighten the situation. We truly do respect the institution and what they have done for us. So ground was broken for the Oregon Hospital for the Insane, located in Salem, Oregon, on May 1st, 1881, and was not completed until October 23rd, 1883. Hey, Hmm. the day you were born. Yeah, I'm exactly that old. It's amazing. (laughs) So it was located on Asylum Avenue until enough folks complained about the name, and by 1888, it was changed. I'm sure the people living on the street didn't want to give out their address as 1234 Asylum Avenue. (laughs) I think I would have moved there because it was 1234 (laughs) Asylum Avenue. (laughs) And then got mad they changed the name. (laughs) Yeah, I would have been pissed. Like, you didn't ask me. I don't on State Street. (laughs) (laughs) So the Oregon State Hospital is the oldest operating psychiatric hospital in the state of Oregon and one of the oldest continuously operated hospitals on the West Coast. When patients were first admitted to the hospital, they were diagnosed with such simple things like religious paranoia, uh, masturbation, or being a drunk. Mm. Um, Many of the patients admitted back then would never even be thought of as insane by today's standards. One story of a patient being sent to the asylum was that a man was speaking in tongues, so they thought he was possessed, right? So Miguel would have been sent to the asylum if he came through. (laughs) Like then all the Chinese immigrants and everything too. Yeah. That's funny. Yep. So come to find out he was just from another country and nobody spoke his language. I wonder if he finally learned how to speak English while in the asylum and they let him go. Possibly. <laughs> They're like, or oh, they, shit, man, I didn't realize. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little insane, as it were. <laughs> I think the hospital was insane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when the hospital was built, they included a set of subterranean tunnels. These tunnels would be used to transport meals, laundry, and patients to other wings of the hospital. 
keeps everybody out of view, as it were. Mm-hmm. There's a building across the street that they would use for admittance. Patients would be first brought here, then spend a few nights under observation, during which time it was determined where they needed to go in the hospital. So side note, there is a swimming pool in the basement of the building. And when we went to visit, we were told the pool is still full of water and maintained even though no one uses it. They're worried if they drain the water, the walls will fall in and possibly destroy the foundation of the building. Yeah, it would no longer be structurally, contextually intact. (laughs) I hatch. So after it was determined where to put the patients, they would use these tunnels to transfer the patient to the hospital. Um, You can still see the purple glass tiles on the sidewalk that indicate where the tunnel is. The idea of the glass tiles is to light up the tunnel. And ever since we found out what these are, we look for them in every city we go to. Yeah, if you're walking along in... I don't know. I feel like Virginia City there in Nevada had some. Mm-hmm. They're all over in several of the older towns, but just these purple yep. rectangle objects, often real close to the building. And they've we've been down in some basements that they are used to provide natural light to the basement before yeah. electricity, basically. Remember in Deadwood at the Seth Bullock Hotel? Mm-hmm. And we told the lady giving us the tour, hey, that's what these are for. And she had no idea. Yeah. And <sighs> she knew the history of the hotel, but not the yep. not the little tiles. The Board of Trustees had been petitioning for years to get the name change. In a biennial report published in 1897, it is noted, quote, We would also recommend to your honorable body that the present name of the institution, the Oregon State Insane Asylum, be changed to Oregon State Hospital. The disgrace felt by patients, as well as the humiliation of their relatives and friends, would be largely obviated by a correct understanding of the character and objects of the institution, and this would be conserved by the change suggested. In 1913, the request was finally granted, and the name was changed to Oregon State Hospital. In 1917, the state of Oregon began practicing eugenics, and some of the patients from the hospital were part of this practice. For those of you that do not know what eugenics is, don't worry, I didn't know what it was either. Essentially, eugenics is a set of beliefs that aimed to improve the genetic quality of the human population. They would sterilize or prevent the procreation of an undesirable human population in an effort to improve the genetic composition of humanity. It is claimed that the Oregon State Hospital sterilized roughly 509 patients, um, and of that, 59% were women. The state had a group called the State Eugenics Board of Oregon, designated specifically to determine if a person was fit for sterilization. So I was on a board of one and determined I was fit for sterilization. Is that kind of the same? (laughs) Possibly. (laughs) Uh, The woman would either have their fallopian tubes or ovaries removed, where the men would either get a vasectomy or in some cases they were castrated. That's a little extreme, I think. Uh, If birth control was the end game, don't you think a vasectomy would have been enough? Yeah, I do. (laughs) The state finally abolished the practice in 1983. That's 66 years of castration. Holy balls. (laughs) (laughs) Did you just dad choke us already? (laughs) Getting an early start on it, yeah. Um, In 2002, Governor Kitzabar... 
Katabur. Katabur apologized for their practice, saying, quote, I am here to acknowledge a great wrong done to more than 2,600 Oregonians over a period of about 60 years. Forced sterilization in accordance with a doctrine called eugenics. The time has come to apologize for misdeeds that resulted from widespread misconceptions, ignorance, and bigotry. It's the right thing to do, the just thing to do. <laughs> eugenics wasn't the only fucked up thing the hospital practiced. They also performed frontal lobotomies on several patients. A lobotomy is where they take a surgical instrument and put it up your nose they then sever the connection in the brain's prefrontal cortex. According to the scienceofpsychotherapy.com, the prefrontal cortex, also known as the PFC, is the cerebral cortex covering the front part of the frontal lobe. This brain region has been implicated in planning complex cognitive behavior, personality expression, decision-making, and moderating social behavior. Uh, they did this because they believe they were helping patients suffering from either depression, panic disorders, and schizophrenia. Many of the patients that had this procedure done to them did not recover. Uh, they would start throwing up, lose batter and bowel function, um, have eye problems. Basically, they turned them into semi-functioning lethargic patients. Or zombies. <laughs> yeah. So not every treatment they performed on a patient was terrible. They would do electrotherapy on patients, sending an electrical current through the brain. See, that's not so bad. <laughs> Sounds terrible, yet it's a practice still in use today. They would also practice hydrotherapy, wherein they would sedate a patient and place them in either a warm or ice-cold bathtub. Um, I don't know about you, but the sedation in a warm bath doesn't sound too bad. Yeah, I think I do that every night. <laughs> so they also use straitjackets and bed cuffs to keep a patient restrained during moments of mania. <laughs> In 1942, the hospital had quite the scare when 47 people died and 263 were sick from poisonous eggs. Yeah, bad chickens. <laughs> so during this time, World War II was going on and the hospital was getting the eggs from a federal surplus. Before Governor Charles A. Spring got all the facts, he demanded everyone stop using the eggs and called it a, quote, mass murder. Investigators from the American Medical Association, Food and Drug Administration, and the Army rushed to the state to test all the eggs up and down the coast. They were able to determine that the eggs had been poisoned with sodium fluoride and that the hospital was the only place to have contaminated eggs. So sodium fluoride is commonly used in insecticides as well as in rat and cockroach poisons. Uh, two cooks came forward and confessed they sent a patient named George A. Noson to the basement to get powdered milk. He must have mistakenly brought back roach poison and then mixed it in the scrambled eggs. The two cooks were arrested but found not guilty during the trial. Yeah, that's tough. So George, on the other hand, was never arrested, but instead spent the remainder of his life in the hospital, forever labeled as a killer. He passed away in 1983 after an altercation. The official cause of death was heart disease. George's file was noted as having a reputation of being combative and getting into fistfights with fellow patients. Patients who I'm sure never stopped accusing and blaming him for the poisoning. Yeah, I'm sure. 
Uh, the tragedy could have been worse. The hospital at the time had roughly 2,700 patients. Many of the patients complained the eggs tasted salty or soapy. That sounds gross. A little bit. And immediately began experiencing symptoms. Nurse Allie Wassel took one bite of the eggs after the dinner trays were brought to her ward and noted the taste was off, so she refused to let her patients eat them. She did become ill from the eggs, but was able to make a full recovery. She's a hero. Yeah, absolutely. Who knows how many people were in that ward, but she saved them all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. Sorry you don't get dinner tonight, but you get to live to see another day. <laughs> yeah. And so was it the patient that was making the eggs with this powdered milk or whatever's going on here? Or did they bring it to the cooks and they didn't even look at the big old number 10 can with a poison symbol on it? Yeah, that's what I couldn't figure out. And I kept thinking that like, was nobody watching this guy or did the cooks just not care? Or, you know, I don't know. I just felt like the investigation kind of failed. Lots of people done fucked up. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, that's crazy. Well, in January 1975, Milo's foreman filmed the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, starring Jack Nicholson, Louise Fletcher, William Sampson, Christopher Lloyd, and Danny DeVito at the hospital. The movie is based on the book written by Ken Casey. The film took only three months to film, and at the request of the hospital director, Mr. Dean Brooks, the movie was to star not only himself, but actual patients. Brooks wanted to shine a light on mental health, and he also felt the money could help the hospital. The movie is about a man who was sent to the hospital from the prison work farm for a bit of an evaluation. He immediately starts to interfere with the daily routine of the patients, and things get a little out of control. So sorry for those of you that have not seen it yet, but we're going to ruin ruin the ending for you. So if you don't want to hear, pull your headphones out or plug your ears. Spoiler alert, (laughs) if any of you are wondering, at the end of the movie, they do give Jack Nicholson a lobotomy. Not in real life. Maybe. It could explain a little bit. (laughs) In an article by Tanya Lewis on LiveScience.com, she interviewed Dr. Baron Lerner. Lerner. uh, Where he says, quote, Usually things in movies are exaggerated, but in this case, it was disturbingly real. If you want to know more about the movie, well... You'll just have to watch it. <laughs> but you don't need to now. We gave away the ending. Yeah. It's still worth it, though. <laughs> it's a good show. It is really good. Um, it is said that Jack Nicholson stayed at the hospital for a while to get a feel of how the patients acted in an attempt to get into character. He even befriended a patient and came back to visit him after the movie was finished. So kind of cool. Yeah. Pretty awesome. So we wanted to share some of the patient stories that were admitted here, not to make fun of them, but to pay a little tribute to them. Uh, Pyra Rudolph, her occupation was listed as housekeeper. She was admitted several times with the diagnosis of acute mania caused by domestic trouble. Pyra was married to John Rudolph in Illinois and later settled in Oregon with him. They were married for 23 years before it ended in 1865 when John filed for divorce. According to his petition, she spat in his face put tobacco in his food, and quote, By cursing and screaming at him, continued to annoy him. <laughs> she even threatened to kill him by slitting his throat while he slept. Despite numerous pages of documentation of her husband's case, 
There is not one record of her side of the story. Well, clearly she was the crazy one, so they locked her up. They don't need her side, right? Uh, Yeah, who cares? (laughs) So that's all you have to do. Yeah, she yelled at me. Lock her up. (laughs) So our next gal was Nancy Cox. She was a 31-year-old woman when she was admitted on March 15, 1884. Her diagnosis was acute mania caused by masturbation. She she was married when she came to the hospital. Then she was listed as separated and finally listed as divorced. She spent 40 years in the hospital before she was transferred to the hospital in Pendleton, Oregon, where she lived out her last days. How terrible to get sent to the hospital for something like that and you never get back out. Yeah, all she did was marry the wrong guy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So she was a little bit more desirous than he was. Yeah. Nothing wrong. So, mm-hmm. uh, Frank and Molly Hurt were admitted on May 1st, 1904, when the religious leader they were following was arrested. Frank and Molly were followers of the Franz Edmund Creefields. 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 A religious sect known as the Bride of Christ Church. But the locals referred to them as the... Holy Rollers. <laughs> Edmund came to Corvallis in... 1903, preaching the beauty of the full gospel. He would preach to his followers, sometimes up to 24 hours, and the congregation would roll on the floor, pleading for God's forgiveness. Soon the city got fed up with this and told him he could no longer preach within the city limits. He was eventually arrested for having an adulterous relationship, and many of his followers were then taken to the asylum. Molly was diagnosed with Crone C. mania, brought on by religious excitement. Both of their histories say that they would, quote, Lie their faces upon the floor and pray day and night, claiming messages direct from God. The two only spent a year in the hospital before they were discharged. So Roy de Atramon and his two brothers, Hugh and Ray. Side note, Ray and Roy are twin brothers. Uh Uh-huh. Well, the three of them attempted to rob a train on October 11th, 1923. They blew up the mail coach in hopes of getting the $40,000 inside. But they overestimated the amount of explosives needed and ended up blowing up everything. (laughs) They didn't want to leave any witnesses, so they killed the engineer, they killed the postal clerk, the fireman. They were eventually caught and thrown into jail for the remainder of their lives. Roy spent about 22 years in jail before he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and taken to the hospital. While at the hospital, they performed a lobotomy on him, which left him unable to care for himself. He passed away on June 17, 1983. Jerry Brudos, he was one crazy, fucked-up serial killer. He was brought to the hospital in 1956 at the age of 17 after he had abducted and beat a young woman. He then threatened to stab her if she did not follow his sexual demands. He spent nine months there where they determined his sexual fantasies revolved around his hatred towards his mother and really women in general. He left the hospital with a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Uh, We're not going to get into his crimes he committed after he left. So if you're interested in knowing more, just look his nasty ass up. Nasty. I'm not going down that road. (laughs) (laughs) A little disgusted, are you? Yeah. (laughs) 
All right. On December 14, 1955, Richard Brodigan was arrested for throwing a rock through the police station window. He was just trying to get a hot meal and a warm place to sleep, but after spending time in jail, the cops felt he was a little crazy and took him to the state hospital on December 24th. Aw, Merry Christmas Eve. Yeah, that's pleasant. Let's lock you up. (laughs) Well, he was warm and probably got a meal. Yeah. At the hospital, he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and clinical depression. They treated him with electroconvulsive therapy in hopes to cure him. He was released from the hospital on February 19, 1956, and later went on to get several of his stories and poems published. During his stay at the hospital, he began writing The God of the Martians. Uh, we can't share any of his work on the podcast, so um, as you know, we don't want to get sued. So if you want to know more, just look him up. He's got a lot of really fun, short poems and stories. Yeah, if you're familiar with Charles Bukowski, whom we'll cover in a future episode, a personal hero of mine, uh, Brodigan's work is partially influenced by old Hank and pretty apparent in some of his work. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, in 2004, the state senator, Peter Courtney, and some health officials took a tour of the hospital. As they walked down the hallways, they could see the walls falling apart. The attic had pigeons living in it, pigeon poop everywhere, and dead birds on the ground. Tarps were covering the holes in the roof with buckets on the ground to catch rainwater. Uh, Because of the decay of the building, the patients were moved to the more livable parts of the hospital, causing them to have major overcrowding issues. So as these folks were leaving the hospital, someone noticed a shed and asked what was inside that. They were told it's a room of unclaimed ashes. After they found the key to get inside, they were shocked to see wooden shells with copper canisters placed on them as though they were surrounded by human beings. I can't imagine that feeling walking into that room. Yeah, thinking maybe it's a maintenance shed and you walk in and there's, I don't know, a few thousand cans. Dead, <laughs> yeah, cans full of dead people's ashes. Yeah. Crazy. Yep. So the canisters. Thanks, Marley. <laughs> uh, the canisters were poorly stored. And when the city had a flood, several of the cans were exposed to water. This caused the canisters to begin to take on a life of their own, really. Each one of the canisters had some sort of a three-dimensional design on it with turquoise, pink, and gold colors. Some of the cans even started to form together. As they began looking around, they noticed a book full of names with a number next to them. The um, number in the book would match up with the number on the bottom of the canister, and there was roughly 3,500 cremated remains in these copper canisters. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, it was a pretty awful sight for them to see. Someone's family member passed away at the hospital. The body was never claimed. They were then cremated and placed inside a copper canister to be put on a shelf next to other forgotten souls, then left to the winds of time. If they had not asked to see inside this room, the cans may very well still be sitting there today. Science is able to explain why the cans have changed so much. Yeah, so they're able to explain why the cans have changed so much over time, but we think it's beautiful to believe that each person in the can is its own unique individual, and they didn't want to be the same as the the can next to them. They wanted to stand out and get someone to notice them, hopefully do something about them. Well, that is exactly what happened. When articles were written about the canisters and placing the hospital in a horrible light, 
a man named David Massell read about them and knew he needed to photograph the cans and bring them to life. So David is known for photographing copper mines. So photographing copper canisters seemed right up his alley. He then took the photographs and published them in a book called Library of Dust. In David's blog, he said that during one of his visits to the hospital, an inmate was cleaning outside the room, leaned over his broom, poked his head inside, and said, quote, Library of Dust. <laughs> this is where he got the name for the book. He describes the canisters saying, quote, It's a beauty and horror. It's a double-edged thing, seductive and disturbing. Because of this book and several articles written about the canisters, the state won a Pulitzer Prize in 2006. Also, this brought a light to the people of Oregon that they could no longer ignore. The people of Oregon voted to allocate a half a billion dollars for mental health care and new facilities. Some of the money was used to upgrade the Oregon State Hospital. That's quite the impact to having all this stuff in a shed, and now all of a sudden they get a half a billion dollars, $500,000, yeah. to start improving and bringing things right. I was reading something, and I couldn't find the exact article, but it said that in Oregon's, what is it, your your like laws that you have as a state? Mm -hmm. So in Oregon's laws, it's like one of the very first laws that they have in there is to take care of the mentally ill people. Wow. So, I mean, it's always been a big thing for Oregon to help these people. High priority, yeah. Yeah, and I just think that they kind of, it wasn't as a big thing to them at that time. And to have this come about, it really made them open their eyes of like, hey, we're not doing what we were supposed to be doing. Right. Yep. Well, good job, guys. Mm -hmm. So as demolition began on the hospital, they decided to take the most usable ward and turn it into a most, into a museum. This is what brought us to the Oregon State Hospital. Not to just try and admit gypsy. <laughs> he tried several times. <laughs> trust me. Um, the museum was opened on October 2012. They had actress Louise Fletcher, who played Nurse Ratchet, and the hospital director, Dean Brooks, at the Ribbon Cutting. The address for the museum is 2600 Center Street, Salem, Oregon. And right now, due to COVID, the museum is temporarily closed. But go to the website at oshmuseum.org, and they'll have updated information there. The last I looked at, they had no time frame of when they were going to open the museum back up. Yeah. So as you walk into the museum, you are greeted by some of the friendliest folks that are most willing to tell you about everything they know regarding the museum and mental health. They have you check in, give them a little bit of money, and then you get the name of an actual patient that was there at the hospital. The idea being you have to try and find some information about the patient during your visit. The museum is self-guided, so you can explore at your own leisure. Uh, behind the welcome desk is an exhibit with some sort of a unique instrument inside. Um, they have little cards there, and you can write down what you think that it is and then put it in the box. And they change out the display every so often just to kind of keep things a little exciting. Do you win a prize? Do you remember? I don't remember. I think if you were right, they would pin it up on the board. Oh, okay. And then your name was on there with, with the... Last two. month's winner type yeah, of thing? Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. So the Why Am I Here exhibit is just that. Here you can explore why the patient was admitted to the hospital, what occupation they had when they were admitted, and what they were diagnosed with. 
They have these little telephones throughout that you can pick up and hear an interview being done with the actual patient. Yeah, the one I listened to was of a woman, and I don't recall her name, but the conversation started with her in the admittance meeting. She sounded happy and as if nothing was wrong. The conversation then moved on to a few months later, and it sounded as though she was getting worse. There was, like, no cheerful tone voice left in her voice. It was almost like she was becoming depressed. It was really crazy. I almost couldn't finish listening to it because it was, like, a few interviews, and I'm like, all right, this is just getting a little too sad for me. Yeah, yeah, they're pretty intense, pretty real. Mm -hmm. So there's a room dedicated to the treatments performed on patients. Here you get to see what a lobotomy table looked like and the tools they used to perform them. The table there is made of steel with knobs at the end of it to adjust the angle of the table. They also talk about how the hospital used insulin shock therapy for a time. Thankfully, we've since learned that these are not really safe and effective treatments to help someone uh, become better and have since abolished the practice. Yeah. Uh, from 1952 to 1954, the hospital did explore cosmotherapy therapists. Cosmotherapists? I think that's what they were called. They are now. Cosmotherapists. <laughs> uh, <laughs> tested on patients to see if a manicure or a better brow arch could improve your mental health. Um, I don't know about you ladies, but if my brows are on fleek, I feel like a million bucks. I wonder if they ever tried tattoo therapy at any time. I know that's the one that works for me. <laughs> they should, huh? I think I'd pay more than I would to see a traditional therapist. <laughs> to go and get tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> Most expensive skin I've ever seen. <laughs> that's my heaviest bill every month, yeah. <laughs> well, the hospital had a farm on the property that the patients would work while staying there. They raised pigs for bacon, chicken for... Eggs and meat? And cows for... The milk. Yeah. <laughs> they also grew enough fruits and vegetables to be self-sufficient and also supp supplied the state prison and universities with produce. That's a lot if you think about it. That's a whole lot of veggies. Yeah, it's kind of cool they did that. Yeah. If they were unable to work on the farm, they would build furniture, horse saddles, or even jigsaw puzzles. The gals would work in the textile shop producing linens, and they even made the straight jackets for in-house use. Wouldn't that be crazy if you had a breakdown while at the hospital and they put a straight jacket on you and it was the one that you made? Yeah. Like this, I know this stitch. This is mine. And you have a lot of time to stare at it. Yeah. Be a little wild. Kind of start making you a little angry, I think. Like, Uh-huh. Damn your eyes. <laughs> So they also have a section of the museum with kitchen supplies as well as pictures of what the kitchen used to look like. There's a large metal pot with ladles hanging from the ceiling. I wonder if any of those utensils were used to cook the poisonous eggs. Don't do the lick test to find out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we talked earlier about the tunnels under the hospital that are no longer in use. Well, at the museum, they have pictures of what the tunnels used to look like. They didn't just use the tunnels to transport supplies and patients. They also had a wood shop and a beauty parlor there where yeah. you can get your eyebrows done, ladies. And we also understand it was often used for some late night uh, carousing. <laughs> so one of the rooms in the museum is dedicated to the patients who had committed suicide, murder at the hospital, as well as other attacks. They also have the documentary Library of Dust playing there. The movie talks about the discovery of the copper canisters and what they plan to do with them to pay tribute to the lives lost. 
yeah, if you want to see this movie, it's actually on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a short little, I don't know, 45 minutes. It's worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, while we were in the room watching the video, we noticed that there was a plant in the corner. And one of the branches on it would slowly kind of move side to side for just a short period. And it would stop. Then it would start moving again. Um, I think Drifter has a video of it. Yeah, um, I believe so. Yeah. So we'll have to see if we can find it. Um, it was a little freaky, like a ghost was in the room, but the fact that it was moving kind of like clockwork, we think it might have just been the air moving around the room. I don't know. Yeah, it's what we told ourselves, but there was no <laughs> doors opening and closing. There was no open window in there. Yeah. If it was wind, it was it had to be like a recirculation system in there. Yeah. But nothing else was moving, none of the cards on the mantle or anything else. Yeah. yeah. I'll see if, if I can find the video, I'll put it up on the website. Yeah. <laughs> So one area, there is a room all set up as it would have been if a patient was staying there. The room's not very big. It's warmer than a prison cell for sure, mm-hmm. but not necessarily much bigger. Um, it just had a single bed in it with a stool, but you get a dresser. Uh, Drifter actually tried to climb into the bed and take a little nap at the and wrap up in the Oregon State Hospital blanket. It's a lot of walking. I was a little tired. <laughs> also, if anyone from the hospital museum is listening to this, we think it would be a great idea if you sold those blankets. Yeah, would have one right now if they did. Or three. Or ten. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe they do now. But when we went there, we didn't see anything. Um, I actually have pictures of Drifter trying to snuggle up with it. And I'll see if he'll let me put them up on the website. Yeah, we'll see about that. <laughs> So the museum also has a display for the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. They have the hydrotherapy machine that Chief used to break the window in the corner. Chief's broom, or at least what he thought was a broom, is standing to the side. And on a shelf in the corner is the actual black and white television that was in the day room of the movie. When the museum was being put together, they found the TV, but it didn't have any of the knobs. Then they remembered that Nurse Ratched took them off. <laughs> so they sent the TV to New York to have it retrofitted so it could now show the movie. Wouldn't it be fun to pop some popcorn, sit down in the room, and watch the movie in the exact area that it was filmed? Yeah. I'd have to put you in a straitjacket for it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they had one there on display. They so did, yeah. Just break the little glass window, take it. I used to own one. <laughs> Not even surprised. Yeah, surprise. (laughs) The the movie won several Oscars. Best Picture, Best Actor in a Leading Role, Best Actress in a Leading Role, Best Director, Best Writing, Screenplay Adapted from Other Material. I think if there is an award to win, they won it. Yeah. Uh, The movie also put mental health and its treatment of patients into the public's view. Indeed. In an interview of Louise Fletcher by Cappy Lynn, she tells her that she can no longer bear to watch the movie and that she puts it in the same category as The Killing Fields and Deer Hunter. She says, quote, I find it too painful. Indeed. So when we went to the museum, we had no idea about the canisters and the outdoor memorial the city put up for the lost souls. We're so thankful the woman at the welcome desk told us to go check it out. Um, on July 7th, 2014, they had a dedication to the memorial where Senator Peter Courtney spoke about finding the canisters. The memorial is just a short walk from the museum and it's well worth it. There is a building with three brick walls and the fourth is made of glass. This allows you to look into the building and see the canisters placed on the shelf. 
Um, these are the original canisters that were found in the shed. The building is the old storage shed that the cans were found in and has been relocated to where it sits today. They removed the remains from the canisters and placed them in ceramic tubes in order to preserve the remains and the canisters. The tubes were then placed in three partial walls that wrapped around a tree that is in the center of the memorial. There is a metal tab on the front and the back of the wall that has the number that was on the bottom of the cans as well as the patient's name that is stored inside the tube. We have lots of pictures of the display and we'll share them with you on the website. Certainly. So the memorial is outside and you don't need to purchase a museum ticket to make a visit. If we were in Portland right now, we wouldn't hesitate to make the drive just for the memorial itself. Yeah, and even though the museum's shut down for COVID, you can still go see this. Mm-hmm. And it's it's worth it. We, I mean, we talked earlier that we probably spent more time looking at every canister in that display. And we spent more time doing that than we did in the actual museum. Because yeah. it's, each can is, it's itself, you know, it's so, so crazy. Very artistic. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So take a visit if you're around the area, anywhere near it, it's worth it. Mm -hmm. So in 2007, the hospital was granted permission from the state to release the names of the deceased in hopes of reuniting families with their lost loved ones. If a family is able to prove the remains are theirs, they are given the copper canister, the ceramic tube holding the cremains, and the metal tabs that are holding the tubes inside the wall. If you're interested in finding out if you have a family member there, You can get on the website oregon.gov. There you'll find the entire list of names of the patients as well as the date of birth and date of death. According to the website, as of September 2020, 696 urns have been reunited with families of the deceased. Yeah, it's it's cool that they were able to do that. And it's fun on the wall where you see the little tabs missing. So they'll just be like random light shining through. Mm -hmm. It's fun. Pretty sure I've got a picture of your eyeball looking through one on the other side of that wall. <laughs> I forgot I did that. <laughs> yeah. <Nope. laughs> um, so when the canisters were discovered, they assumed the remains of the patients who passed away in the asylum from 1883 to 1913 were there. They have since found out that the 1,500 people who passed away um, and were never claimed during this time were actually not there. So when the asylum was first opened, they had a cemetery on site for the patients that passed and whose families never claimed the bodies. Some families didn't have the money to bury the patients, where other families were too ashamed to admit they had a family member in the asylum. So they let the city take care of the remains. The first burial in the asylum cemetery was Frank Holdridge, who passed away on November 11th, 1883. In an article published in September 30th, 1912, it states the legislature will meet to discuss the installation of a crematory at which all unclaimed bodies at the institution will be cremated. By 1913, the legislature wanted the cemetery removed to, they wanted it removed to make room and required that the hospital post ads in the newspaper to notify the families that any unclaimed remains would be cremated. They have no evidence of where the cremains were placed after the only thing they had to go on is that in the 1950s, some farmers found headstones from the cemetery on the land and the trail has since gone cold and there's no new information as to where the 
1,500 people are resting. These had stones, are they tossed out there or were they actually finding graves? No, they were just like randomly throwing the headstones there. Like, hmm. I don't know, as if they were like just using it as a dump site. Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. So when we left the museum, it was a little hard not to feel saddened by the way people were treated back then. Thankfully, we no longer practice many of the techniques used back then, yet we also had to acknowledge a few things. One, the doctors were practicing with the best knowledge they had at the time. And two, without the work done back then, we would not be where we are today and have the understanding that we have now with mental health. We still have a long way to go with treating patients, but the museum does a fine job showing the advancements we have made. If we don't talk about issues like this, then we're really kind of bound to repeat ourselves. Yep. Uh, when we went to Oregon, we stayed at the McMinimum's Edgefield Hotel in Troutdale. The McMinimum's brothers purchased the property in 1990, turning it into a hotel with their own brewery, their own distillery, their own winery. It's They did a great job. Um, they have a restaurant and even a movie theater, to just name a few of the things they offer. And they also have a they have two par three golf courses that allow you to wander through the property if golfing's your thing. Yeah, so prior to the brothers purchasing the building, it was a poor farm. The building was built in 1911 and was used to house families to live in it while they worked the farm. In 1964, the building was used as a nursing home, and then by 1982, it was vacant. The county wanted to actually tear down the building to try and market the land to potential buyers, but the Troutdale Historical Society challenged the decision, claiming the building had historical importance. When the brothers bought the building, they spent years renovating due to damage caused by neglect and the vandals. They even had um, artists come in after they were done with everything and paint these beautiful murals all over the walls to pay tribute to the history of the building. Um, If you guys ever get a chance to stay there, or I think at any of the McMinnums, they've done it at all of their hotels with the murals, right? Yeah, they do a lot of historical building restorations and convert them into music venues and, you know, bars, breweries, distilleries, the whole nine hotels. Yeah. So if you guys ever get a chance to stay at this one in particular, there's a fun little painting of a cat. And if you guys find it, let me know because I'm not going to tell you where it's at. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of the rooms there are hostel style, so there's no bathroom inside of it, but you get a nice super plush bathrobe. Mm -hmm. So grab yourself another beer and get in your bathrobe and start wandering. They have uh, hot soaking pools out there. Those were so nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, That's a great place. Spend a whole weekend there if you can. Yeah. That still wouldn't be enough time to see it all. No, absolutely not. When I was looking through all the pictures, I'm like, I want to go back. I know. I love it out there. Um, So as we were driving back to the hotel, we joked about the brothers purchasing the building across the street from the hospital that used to be the admittance building and turning it into a hotel. Uh, I don't know if any about any of you, but we think it would be fun to stay in an old insane asylum. Yeah, we could do that. Not like be admitted, you know, like pay money to stay there as a vacation. Well, we'll see. (laughs) At the time we visited, we were told the building wasn't used for much other than offices. Nowadays, it looks like it's being used as a correctional facility. So I guess our hopes of the brothers buying it is no longer a possibility. (laughs) Well, there you have it, folks. That was our trip to the Oregon State Hospital. 
would like to thank you again for joining us and for all the support and encouragement we've received. You guys have been great. Yeah. Um, if you're listening on an Apple device, don't be afraid to hit the little five-star button. We're told they guess it makes a difference. Yeah, they say it, so <laughs> somebody says it. it must be true. <laughs> I don't even know. Yep. So, and now your patience is about to pay off. It's time for Dad Jokes with Gypsy. Who, me? Are we still doing this? Yes. Why would we stop? All right. All right. <laughs> oh, so sorry. Yeah, make some noise. Hold. I know. I'm so sorry. I was getting excited, okay? All right. <laughs> so, why can't you hear a psychiatrist using the bathroom? Why can you not hear a psychiatrist using the bathroom? <laughs> because the P is silent. <laughs> I don't care who you are. That's funny. <laughs> So lastly, some advice to help you through the holiday season. The next time someone tells you that mental illness is all in your head, tell them, well, duh, where else is it going to be? My kidneys. (laughs) I'm going to take those sounds away (laughs) from you. (laughs) Wow. I know. It's awesome. All right, then. (laughs) Maybe you could use a new joke. Maybe. (laughs) Well, let's do this. If any of our listeners have a dad joke you'd like to share, please send them to Gypsy by email. All you need to do is make Gypsy laugh and (laughs) obviously not much of a challenge there. (laughs) No. uh, If she picks your joke, you'll get the credit on air if she can stop laughing to give you credit. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the email address is rebels at rebelatlarge.com. Yeah, and that's rebels, plural, with an S at the end. I'll put a link to the email in the show notes. Um, you can get on our website and find it too. So just please put dad joke in the subject line so we can kind of keep them sorted and straightened out. Uh, you can also find the link to the email address on our website. Rebelsatlarge.com, where there are also links to our social media and, of course, any pictures related to the podcast episodes. So thank you again, folks. Have yourselves a very safe and wonderful holiday season. Safe travels. We'll see you all down the road. Merry Christmas. Mm, Happy New Year. See you next year. (laughs) Bye.